Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. You know the story, of course. 50-odd years ago, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins left the Earth's atmosphere in Apollo 11 for a round trip that became known as one of the greatest adventures in humanity's history. And last year, the world celebrated the anniversary of that historic event. There were parties, there were Hollywood films, there were tributes, and there was this website that provided the most comprehensive, authoritative, and real-time experience of the mission, and all of the images, sound, and film restored and painstakingly resynced to the exact moment it occurred, Apollo in real time. Next week, the next installment of the project launches to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission, which you may recall from a mid-90s Tom Hanks film of the same name. And 50 years to the exact moment from when it happened, you'll be able to watch it play out live. And I've got to say, the website, apolloinrealtime.org, is one of the most astonishing web interfaces, deep-dive heritage projects, and detailed labors of love I think I've encountered online. The man behind it all is NASA's Ben Feist. And when I say NASA's Ben Feist, I don't mean he made Apollo in real time as a NASA employee. He became a NASA employee because they saw his Apollo in real time. I spoke to Ben last week, and he's a fascinating guy. Here's my conversation with Ben Feist. Enjoy. Ben Feist, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. No problem at all. You're working on some phenomenal stuff. I want to start, before we get into the things that you're working on now, is where did you start? Not how did this part of the process begin? What got you into working in this kind of territory in the first place? Sure. Well, uh, I've always been a software developer and I've always built things that people can see. So in the 90s, that meant being a multimedia guy, making CD-ROMs and interactive experiences. And eventually that became, uh, on, of course, now it all happens on the internet. Um, and I've always been excited about making interactive experiences. And I came across uh, the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which is a website that's still online. And it looks like it's from the 90s still, which is kind of on purpose. But right. it is a hypertext version of the transcripts of what they said on the surface of the moon uh, on all the different Apollo missions. Yep. And when I came across this in the late 90s, I couldn't believe the richness of this material that had been pulled together by a team of volunteers. And I thought, this is the ultimate multimedia uh, you know, source material, if we can make something out of it. Um, and that idea stuck with me for many years before I finally got started in about 2009. But by then, you weren't building CD-ROMs anymore. No, no. And, and you know, this is... And now here at the end, I can give you numbers. It's almost 200 gigabytes worth of data. Um, So that was an unheard amount of data in 1995. Sure, yeah. Uh, So I kind of needed technology to come along uh, as the idea wouldn't leave me. I was trying to quickly do how many many CD-ROMs is that in my head. Yeah, (laughs) it's a lot. Yeah, I don't know if I can do that math quickly. 300 and, 300 and something CD-ROMs. Right, right. But it's sort of brought you to, I guess, to the problem of being an archivist. Yes, uh, I'm certainly not an archivist, um, although now I am an archivist, or I, I guess I know what it takes to be a good archivist. Um, and I have huge respect for the people that do it well, uh, having met people in the National Archives now uh, who do it for a living and do it very properly. It, it really is a, a wonderful job. 
Well, when I first came across you, the, the reason that you sort of came across my feed was because all the people that I follow on Twitter who are all about basically old audio gear, which I'm real kind of <laughs> nut over, were reposting pictures of uh, these reel-to-reel tape recorders that you were working with, these sort of like not just sort of multi-channel but like 60-odd channels of, of uh, recordings of mission control. And, the, I mean, they were beautiful machines. And I thought, okay, so there's somebody doing an audio restoration project. And you dig a little bit deeper and there's a lot more to this than this. How do you describe what it is you do exactly? If you're not an archivist and you're, it's not really software yeah. engineering. What I do, I suppose, is uh, I'm a generalist who's trying to make something at the end, which is a real-time uh, recreation of Apollo missions as they occurred. And it turns out during an anniversary, this is an especially wonderful thing to participate in because you are peeking in on history, exactly what was happening on that mission right now, 50 years ago. And and that has caught the attention of many people. And, and it's this is, like I said, a kind of a, a fun thing to put on the internet from my perspective. Um, and, uh, and it really means a lot to a lot of people. We had a million people show up uh, to the Apollo 11 in real time this past summer, uh, which uh, was just an unbelievable uh, outpouring of emotion. Uh, you know, what Apollo 11 means to people is just incredible. Yeah. Um, so, so my, my tech, you know, the technical thing is you have to become a, you know, 3d graphics guy, you have to become an audio guy, but only enough to be dangerous in those arenas. You know, like you just mentioned archivists, it's just flitting along the surface of what that career would have been. Uh, and then moving on to the next portion that you have to figure out in order to try to make these things work. For the sake of, uh, obviously it's a podcast, people can't see you and, and people who are sort of possibly detecting a youthful tone in your voice, you weren't around <laughs> to watch the first time it happened in real time. No, no, I wasn't. Uh, I was born in 71. So I missed it. Uh, by a couple of years, but uh, I was around for two of them, and uh, so Apollo seventeen was uh, in in, uh, in you know when I was little, when I was one or something like that, um, and uh, and Apollo sixteen just shortly before that. So where did the interest come from? Well, I mean, who isn't interested in this stuff? I mean, it's it's kind of the greatest thing, uh, greatest hu human achievement in my opinion, and you know. It, I yeah, grew everyone's, up. Everyone's interested. Not everybody has dedicated their entire life to actually <laughs> recreating it online in real time. Well, <laughs> I'd hate to say that I dedicated my entire life. This, this, just to be clear, this was a hobby uh, that I did on evenings and weekends after my actual job. Right. Um, and uh, this was a way for me to unwind after a stressful day at work. Not, you know, not another job that I've, you know, throwing myself at this painful thing in order to get uh, the outcome. It was the process itself that was a lot of fun. Um, but I don't consider myself uh, any more, you know, passionate about this. I didn't, I wasn't a kid going to space camp or anything like that, you know. Although, what sort of kid were you? Uh, you know, I was a Lego kid. I was a, a kid that liked to make things and, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of make-believe stuff, that, that kind of thing. And, I don't know if I, I don't think I stood out in any particular way. I was just, uh, although, you know, I guess not every kid wants to sit and play Lego for hours. And I did that. So that, that might be an indicator, um, that I like to make things, but, um, I just sort of followed that, that, uh, that mode. And, and my father is, uh, is an artist and he also likes to make things. And I think that was a huge influence on me as well, watching him do what he does. Because I see it in, in just sort of behind you in your workshop, you've got all these kind of maker yeah. tools and uh, a 3D printer. and uh, Yeah, I know. I'm guilty. <laughs> uh, 
you, what you can't see are the many model airplanes that are also in here with me. Um, but uh, yeah, that might be, so there's, there's an example of something else I did after work uh, on evenings and weekends before I discovered all this Apollo work to be done. Right. But it sort of got you noticed. And now you work at NASA. So, <laughs> so, so tell, tell me about how that happened. What was the journey? Well, sure. Uh, the first project I did was about Apollo 17, the last mission, uh, the last landing on the moon of the Apollo series. Um, and uh, and it, it's, a, it's a long story what it took to do that. It was about a six year long process again on, you know, at an hour here and an hour there um, without any real goal uh, other than pulling all this data together. And I knew I would be able to make something of it, but I didn't know what I was going to make. Um, and eventually, yeah, without telling the whole story, uh, I actually contacted, um, or actually they contacted me, uh, the, the head of the lunar reconnaissance orbiter mission, the project scientist named Noah Petro at Goddard space flight center reached out and said, Hey, I just saw your Apollo on real time website. This is really cool. And, uh, I couldn't believe someone from NASA had actually reached out to me I, and I, Oh my God, you're from NASA. You know, this is so cool. Uh, thanks for reaching out, and and we struck up a bit of a friendship. And then uh, for the next anniversary, that was in 2015, and then in 2016, I w I didn't want Apollo 17's websites, uh, you know, glory to just fade away. Now as another thing on the internet, so I wanted to come up with another thing to do for the 2016 anniversary. And I asked uh, Dr. Petro if he had any uh, 3D data or or high resolution photography of where they landed. And he, he started laughing and said, that's literally my job and gave me huge amounts of data um, that I, you know, just kind of dumped it on me. And I went, oh, my goodness, uh, now I have to do something with this data because uh, I can't disappoint NASA, right? So I, that's when I became a 3D modeling guy and I made a 3D uh, rendering of the valley that they landed in, which is in a remarkable place. Um, and so this what this would mean is... The, uh, to be clear, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is a satellite that is mapping the moon right now, and it launched a decade ago and has been doing so for the last 10 years. It, there's a huge amount of information that's been gathered. Um, and this data, uh, pictures and 3D uh, photogrammetry data of, of the valley that they were in is down to 60 centimeters per pixel. You can see the footprints that they left on the surface from these photographs. It's just incredible stuff. So I, I uh, Googled my way through making 3D renderings of when they drove on their traverses from place to place so that you can kind of fly overhead in a virtual drone and watch the rover drive along the surface. And then I, so that took a summer. Um, and then uh, at the end, I, I emailed uh, Dr. Petro and said, hey, listen, I made something with all that data you gave me. And he immediately phoned me and said, this is amazing. You've got to come down and present this at Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, and, you know, we'll come up with a, a date where that makes sense for you to do that. But you have to come and show people that you've done this. And I, I my thought was like, don't you already have people down there that are doing this? And, and he just said, no, <laughs> you have, uh, you know, you've used LRO data, which is current day science data that we use to write papers. And you've real you've reanimated Apollo 17. You've made something it. creative with something that we normally yeah. analyze. Yeah. And, you know, a Apollo is something that happened 50 years ago at NASA. They, you know, they're all very much excited about it and aware of it, but they're studying what they're gathering today. They're moving forward at NASA. They're not necessarily looking back. Um, 
And to tie those two things together and to make it all feel like it's quite present and, and Apollo is just as relevant today as it was uh, when it occurred, um, th this was all stuff that Dr. Petro recognized that I didn't really understand how that all worked yet. Um, so I, I got to go down there uh, in December of 2016 and I presented and gave it my all and showed a room full of scientists what I had done. And, and later that day, I was invited to go out into the field with them and actually uh, help them gather their data on their um, what they call analog missions where they're pretending they're on another planet uh, while they're conducting field activities and uh, and help them to gather their data in a way that would allow it to be presented the way that I had presented it on Apollo17.org. Um, so it was, another, it, you know, not a here's a full-time job. It was do you want to help us with this stuff? And I just kept saying yes and kept trying to move the ball forward over the years until eventually they called me one day and said, listen, your name is on so many things uh, for next fiscal year. Why don't you, it's, it, we're sick of explaining who you are. This guy that made this website that did this thing um, said, no, it's okay. Like he's, he's an okay guy. You should involve him in your project. It'd be easier if you were just Ben from NASA. And I said, well, that sounds good to me. And we went from there. Well, so you're creating something that, that there isn't anybody whose job it is to do that, but there's a massive amount of data, presumably. I mean, that NASA is like the European Space Agency over here is very, very involved in, in collecting and trying to make sense of all of the data that it collects. But it, yes. this this uh, job of interpretation, there doesn't seem to be that kind of role within these organizations. How important is that to our understanding of the science? Well, it, it is quite important. And, and I'm going to wind up hedging everything I say by explaining that it has been told to me by scientists. They've, so this has all been explained to me. So I'm not the one inventing this, just to be clear. <laughs> the way funding works within NASA and other academic organizations uh, is you propose something and it's a very vertically integrated, if you picture it this way, of, you know, a, an instrument to put on the side of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And you are, you know, Arizona State University, you are going to build this camera and it, it takes you a, you know, a decade to go through the proposal process, get the money, assemble the team, build the instrument and fly the instrument in space. Um, and that's a full-time job for the whole team thinking about this one instrument. So if you picture those, you know, hundred of those things all next to each other, those vertical, um, vertically oriented efforts. The only horizontally oriented effort is sort of the mission itself and, and NASA headquarters coordinating everybody. But the at the data level, at the ground level, there's only kind of personal effort to go horizontally. It's not anyone's job. And they they you know teach you in school in, in geology uh, that context for what you're collecting on the surface of the moon or you know in out in the field excursion, you know. The old story is show me a cat, show me a dead cat, and I can say that's a dead cat. Show me a dead cat uh, on the side of the road, and I can tell you that cat was hit by a car. Um, and the context of, of the materials and how it's being gathered is very, very important. Um, so what this does is if you can see the crew member picking up a sample and hear what he's saying about it and get the scientific data that was associated with that sample at the same time, that is context. That's the equivalent of the field geology lesson. Um, and this is, as soon as anybody sees it, they recognize it as, as valuable. So it becomes its own 
effort. That's another funded thing, but it's a horizontally funded thing. Um, and you know that that's the process that I'm in now to try to understand how NASA funding works and to write the the correct proposals to get that money and make this a real project, just like that instrument on the side of a spacecraft. Sure. So you're operating horizontally rather than vertically. Yes, and that's why I don't need a PhD in whatever that vertical expertise is, and everybody else there does. <laughs> right. right, and that's the value of a generalist, I guess. Yeah, I think so, uh, or at least being able to uh, participate in conversations across different things. And I think my career working as a consultant in the uh, internet world um, has prepared me for that. You have to be able to walk into any business and different rooms and people to think about different things and at least pay attention and carry on the conversation. So Apollo 11 uh, in real time had an impact and, and probably more of an impact than you were anticipating. Yes, my hosting bill was quite high. <laughs> I can imagine it was because, I mean, again, that's a lot of data that's going out to a lot of people. Um, yes. But, but do you want to talk about, just so, so we get the, the sense of the scale of that, I mean, you said, you know, uh, a mil it sort of had a million people engaging with it, but you're not just talking about a million hits. There are lots of websites that can get a million hits. You're talking about something much yeah, this, deeper than that. This is uh, the average time spent on the website, I think is like seven minutes or nine minutes or something like that, um, which normally it's measured. When you measure these things in the internet world, they're measured in seconds and three is a good number. Um, but that, you know, that's if you're uh, a marketing agency trying to sell soap or as it were, you know, um, yeah, you want, you want to have mass impact of a small message. And what this was were little hooks of moments like, hey, if you want to see this photo being taken on Apollo 11, click here. And sure enough, that photo appears the moment it was taken, but you're now in the mission and you're hearing what's going on and the next photo comes up and the next photo and you kind of get carried along like you're watching reality television. Well, that's see, to me, that's really interesting because that's about narrative. It's not just about show me some photos that were taken on the, the trip to the moon. It's like what happened next and then what happened and then what happened. And it's yes. that kind of that uh, progress. <laughs> and we know how it ended, right? We know we know what the what the final result of it was. But the story itself uh, at a granular level like that, I think, is is something that's really fascinating to people, particularly with that 50 years of distance on it. Uh, well, I think I, I didn't think it would be fast. It was fascinating to me. I didn't think it would be this fascinating to everybody else, though. Um, you know, if you if you got a pitch from somebody saying you're gonna, I'm gonna make a 240 hour long video that contains technical uh, radio chatter uh, between experts in something that doesn't exist anymore. And everybody's gonna, a million people are gonna tune in and follow along. You know, you tell me I was crazy, but. It is absolutely compelling. And I think a big part of that is that there is no narrator. There is no uh, interpretive voice telling you what to feel or think. You're just watching what actually happened uh, in 1969 in that case. And uh, that no narrative storytelling is, is, uh, is a really compelling thing in today's day where you, you know, nobody knows who to trust and different media outlets all have their different spin on everything. And it's I think refreshing to a lot of people to just get the raw material. Am I right in saying that you could actually sort of hop around in a kind of a non-linear fashion, even though it was concurrent with the timeline? You could go to different stations and see what people were doing at, at uh, the different the different areas. Yes, uh, there's there's essentially for so for Apollo eleven, um, we and this is where the tape machine comes in. So that the I can explain perhaps that part first. Um, 
these tapes are 30 track one inch tapes that run in at 15 sixteenths of an inch per second so they're extremely slow rolling 16 to 17 hour long recordings and there were two of these machines running in parallel recording 30 channels each um basically and the recordings of all these different channels were uh everybody wearing a headset in mission control like you've seen photographs and 16 millimeter footage of people running around silently in mission control because uh, there were no boom mics uh recording anything it's just sort of b-roll stuff um but they were talking over not just over the radio to the crew that was only the capcom doing that um the rest of the people were all working behind the scenes in a hierarchy that got to directives that the flight director would agree to do and then tell the capcom to communicate that to the crew and this protected the crew from hearing 60 voices in their in their ear um, and also helped with command and control on what were what actions were going to be taken this this action and what they were doing in mission control is what's on these tapes and they had not been heard at all uh there was a huge effort done not by me but by another group of people um that took many years to restore one remaining machine that could play these tapes and to build a custom 30 track playhead for it um and uh and that that there's is a actually a podcast series on Johnson Space Center's podcast that explains it um what they did but um essentially that resulted in 11,000 hours of audio from Mission Control for Apollo 11 so a picture you know, they redacted some of the Department of Defense channels just because they're Department of Defense channels. So that's not that hasn't been exported. So we can't play that. Um, you know, not because it contains anything interesting. It probably the missile silos. They who's going to get the sandwich? You know, uh, but uh, it was uh, anyway. So there's 50 channels on the website, and these tapes are not. You know, they're analog, super analog tapes, and the machine playing them back is barely working. And there's there's no uh, so they drift all over the place. They're, the drift rate was about two hours, two hours over sixteen hours. They would drift. That's significant. And, yeah, and they and it wasn't consistent. It was like slowly speed up and slowly slow down. And then on top of that, the motor that was restored that would actually run the machine uh, wasn't balanced. So it's it's introducing uh, about a three hertz uh, flutter into the audio. So it's just. It's kind of not timed properly and sounds horrible. Uh, and uh, in in my my part of that kind of restoration effort was to then become an audio guy enough to understand how to try to solve these problems and and found some remarkable people out there in the world in the open source coding community who have almost solved this problem and started just talking to them about it and seeing if they were interested in helping and they did. So we basically used. Um, an iRigB um, code time code that was on channel one of each of these tapes as a fingerprint to trace the high speed fluctuations and the low speed drift away from the carrier wave that's supposed to be at one kilohertz on that channel. So you're basically taking every sample, looking for the one kilohertz carrier wave, seeing that it's not at one kilohertz in this sample, it's high or low. And then re-speeding that sample to make it at one kilohertz, and you're you're kind of fingerprinting. And you're doing that, that at the sample level. You're not doing that at at the, at the sample level. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a while. You just it's all written in Python, and you just kind of trace the trace the flutter, and then tell it to remove it, and it removes it brilliantly. the The drift rate for Apollo Eleven was uh, two seconds after sixteen hours after this process. 
And the what this does is because it's a 30-track tape, you just apply the corrective action to all adjacent tracks and you have defluttered the tape and retimed it. Um, and the fact that this is possible uh, was like science fiction to me. Um, and, you know, it's like cracking the case. It was really amazing when we got it. And and this, this allowed me to be able to put it into Apollo in real time so that you can go to any moment in the mission and then say, who do you want to listen to? And, and that's now time correct. You can hear what that person in mission control, that position was saying right now. I mean, not only that, but you were also able to retrospectively sync that to the the, the footage that was in the uh, mission control at the same time. So people who are seen to be speaking into uh, into their headsets, you can hear what they're saying. Yes, that was a painstaking effort done by a gentleman named Stephen Slater in the UK. Um, so the parallel path to all this is that this is the raw material that was used to make the Apollo 11 film that was in theaters last year. Um, Stephen and I were involved in that, and this this restoration of this audio was my contribution to the film, uh, part of it anyway. And Stephen then took it, and his job was archive producer, so he was grabbing all the archive. And then once he realized that you could synchronize in this way, the way you just described, now that we had a wayfinding mechanism to say, I think that's the flight dynamics officer, and it looks like this footage was shot just after launch. Um, and you see his lips moving, Stephen would then go look for action on the flight dynamics loop. And it took him um, a long time. I think it took him uh, about 18 months to add sound to this silent footage that had not had any sound to it before. Mm. And we even got moments like Gene Krantz saying, Capcom, we're go for landing. Uh, now synced with audio. You know, nobody, no one's ever seen and heard Gene Krantz say that before. And we were, just, we were ecstatic that, that we got this kind of material. And Stephen delivered all that to the filmmaker, Todd Miller. He then edited it through it and made a film out of it, um, leaving a huge amount of it on the cutting room floor. <laughs> as, as you course, do when we, you're making a... Yeah, of course. Like he needed to, but this is a painful process to make this stuff. And now it's like they didn't use that clip from of Gene Krantz because in the film, uh, they decided to stay on board with the crew and look out the window with that 16 millimeter footage for the whole landing, which is very impactful. But we're like, how could you not use this? Come on. Um, so we got a chance to use it all by placing every synced clip in real time as it occurred on Apollo in real time. And that was uh, the companion to the film, if you want to think of it that way. Fantastic. So Apollo 11, we know how that went. That went quite well. But it's uh, we've had the anniversary of that. And we've got the uh, 50th anniversary of Apollo 13 coming up very shortly. That didn't yes. go quite so well. Yes. Uh, Apollo 13, not a lot of people knew a lot about um, until Tom Hanks uh, starred in a film done by Ron Howard in 1995, which was the 25th anniversary of Apollo, uh, Apollo 13, which I can't fathom we're equidistant it's the center point between the actual event and now that's crazy to me that's a lot that just it seems like a much more recent film but um so that that really brought it uh to everybody's um popular culture mind and you know houston we've had a problem is in the vernacular and that's from that mission uh and failure is not an option is that it actually was never said but that is the that's the movie version of what uh, Gene Krantz said in Mission Control. Um, and yes, I've done all of this work again, with a, this time with a, a dedicated team of uh, volunteers helping me. So this, you know, what took two years to make for Apollo 11 and six years to make for Apollo 17 took eight months for Apollo 13. Um, and uh, 
And it also, this is the, and the crown jewel on this one is the mission control audio that has not been heard since 1970 of what was occurring in mission control when the explosion on board disabled the spacecraft and how did mission control uh, rescue the crew. So this is stuff I haven't heard yet either. I've been processing data even today, uh, which is we're getting the last remaining tapes digitized uh, that were part of the investigation into the explosion. They were kept separate from the rest. So they were in the National Archives, but not with the rest of the Apollo 13 tapes. They were found. They were sent to Johnson Space Center and we're digitizing them and processing them as we speak. These will be these will be online on March 13th on Apollo in real time so that everybody can can listen in and figure out how exactly how they did what they did in mission control. Well, so it's one step beyond going back and watching the Tom Hanks film. You can actually be there and let it play out in real time. Yeah. It, and the Tom Hanks film, I think, is on most people's top five good films about uh, Apollo. You know, it's not it doesn't get too fictitious. I mean, there's always a temptation in, with Hollywood films that are dramatizations to make them more drama. And, you know, the based on a true story only means the you know character names are based on who they were. And But they got it right, uh, the, at least the ethos of what was going on. Um, but like I said, you know, I've already pointed out a couple of things that didn't happen, you know, um, but that that's just nitpicky historian point of view. Right. But you'll you'll now get to uh, watch the far less Hollywood dramatic, but more reality dramatic version of you can hear the stress in the people's voices. You can hear them wondering how things are going to work and uh, actually watch without the sort of gauze looking through the gauze of history and everybody's retelling of back when everybody had the right stuff and we were all special people during Apollo, you can actually hear them, you know, being people and regular people, just like the people we are today, uh, working this problem and getting everybody home. And the stakes were pretty incredibly high. And I guess you could uh, hear that yeah. in people's voices. As <laughs> you know, I mean, you can act that for sure, but to actually go, this person is actually experiencing this literally right now, but yeah. 50 years ago. Uh, that's yeah. And there's, you know, the surgeon, uh, actually, we just found a clip uh, that one of the team members uh, posted that was the surgeon saying, I can't believe the heart rates during the explosion. One of them, one of the heart rates, they said this, the guy was saying out loud, thinking out loud, like this data can't be correct. Like it must've been a problem with the data, the telemetry that came down, but his heart rate was at 183. So one of the crew members, I don't remember which one they were talking about, uh, had a very, very high heart rate, uh, panic level heart rate, perhaps, uh, um, or it was the the antenna did get jostled by the explosion and that you can hear the communication get crackly. So it could just be an anomaly. And he's wondering the same thing, you know, did this happen or not? And there's, you know, phone calls between um, flight controllers and their wives. And there's even phone calls from flight controllers calling the wives of the crew and touching base with them and, you know, letting them know how things are going. And you can hear in those moments, you can hear the emotion and stress uh, clearly, uh, obviously, that would be there. Um, but, you know, everybody's doing their job super professionally in mission control. And there's a little bit of emotion and you start, you can, you can understand it and you can hear when they're stressed out, but nobody is saying anything inappropriate into the, you know, on the loop, on the conversation. And, you know, there's a little bit of gossiping and that kind of chatter, but everybody's very reserved and professional. Um, and it's these real moments where they get on the phone and they drop their, they drop their flight controller 
mode and they're just a person talking to someone else on the phone, that's when you can really hear it. Yeah. And, and particularly a person who's not having a good day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything that's really surprised you going through all this material? You know, something that you would not have expected to come across? Um, well, I, all of it feels like that. Um, there's a, When did they understand that there was a problem on the ground is something that I didn't quite understand before. They knew there was a problem before the crew said, Houston, we've had a problem. And the, and the crew said that about one minute or less than one minute after the explosion. Um, they started on the ground going, what's going on? You know, we've just had this data drop out and this number can't be right. And they've got an O2 tank problem. And then we hear we've got a problem here. And and the first thing that the ECOM flight controller says, and so he's the guy in charge of the electrical systems for the command module. He says, oh, they've got more than a problem. And he, he said that before uh, Lovell said, Houston, we've had a problem. So this whole – so I, I didn't quite understand the – it's seen in the film like everybody on the ground is playing catch-up and trying to figure out what just happened. But in reality, they were already there and understood it all um, before the crew was talking to them. Wow. So it's little things like that and, you know, there, there's no there's – no, um, big giant reveal uh, that I've come across yet that's like, you know, throwing all the historians work out of date or anything like that. It's really putting a finer point on the human experience of what it took to to be a flight controller there. And, you know, remember these people were given the Medal of Freedom for their efforts after the crew was safely uh, returned to Earth. I guess, I mean, you'd be aware at the time of the significance of what it is you're doing. And so to that extent, it makes sense that NASA has been at least a reasonably good steward of its archives, but they're not an archival organization. They're not, that's not their, their job. How, how much of a challenge was that for you in terms of uh, getting this material out? Um, well, the material, the tapes have been at the National Archives, so not at NASA. And the National Archives are in the job of you know, being an archive uh, organization, obviously, and also getting material in and out of out of the archives. So, and again, with the Apollo 11 film, it was all the National Archives footage that we used to make the film. And because you're absolutely right, NASA is not an archival organization, and they're not a museum, and they're not super funded and have people sitting around waiting to answer the phone if you're going to call and ask about the past, because they are spending all of their efforts uh, on how we're going to return to the moon in 2024 right now. And do other things. Um, and that, uh, that effort is the only thing on their mind. So getting things like the only machine remaining that will play these tapes back operational again, which is at Johnson Space Center, does take external funding and, and lots of other work. And there's people there that care passionately within NASA about this, but um, you have hit on a, on a point where if you're going to be a, if you're focused on their past, you're going to be frustrated because they're not a, um, an archival organization just ready to help you out. And they're not a cultural organization specifically either. I mean, they, they, they have this tremendous cultural <coughs> significance and importance. And, and I guess that's why there are so many films and uh, television programs and documentaries and, and all the rest of it. But they must there must be some sort of awareness, even if it's nobody's job to propagate culture within uh, NASA. I mean, even just things like, what does Katherine Johnson mean? is really, really important to the world uh, when you sort of look at what NASA represents. Is there a really deep sense of that or has just nobody got time to think about? Um, I think uh, both organizationally and individually, there's a huge sense of that. People understand it and think about it. And it means a lot to people that they work there. You know, they, you know, there, There's nobody that would turn down um, 
a tour of the mission control restoration when I was working on that, you know, they, everybody just becomes a kid again, even if you've worked at NASA for 20 years and, you know, um, but it's NASA's role to get the data and it's everybody else's role to interpret the data. So it, it's not NASA's place. If you think about it, they, they don't see it as their place to, um, to talk about how culturally important they are. They just do the work. And this is maybe why it's difficult when you're an archivist trying to get stuff out of there, because part of that means that you're not sitting there, you know, manning the phones ready to ready to deliver footage to anybody who might be interested in telling your story. You know, they're also a government organization. So they're not, you know, there's no advertising, if you want to think of it that way. There's no public affairs or, you know, PR effort, like trying to sell the nation on the importance of NASA. Uh, that's literally against the rules. So it's, you know, NASA can't do that. It's against their mandate. Um, they do have a public affairs office, uh, but that is, that's more kind of getting, showing us collecting the data, showing the work being done and interviewing astronauts and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is up to um, everybody else to pick up the mantle and tell the rest of the story. I'm clearly looking at this from the outside, but is this a difficult time politically for NASA? Is it under threat in the same way, say, for instance, the BBC is under threat in Britain? Um, no, it's it's not. It's, uh, you know, politics, policy and politics is always, uh, I think, a, a difficult thing if you're in a public organization because your funding comes from one place and your directives come from another. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a constant effort to try to join those things. Um, I think right now we it, it's a good thing in that we have a clear mandate to return to the moon, uh, which is something that I think a lot of people individually at NASA have wanted uh, to do. And there's a lot more scientific work and exploration work that needs to be done in that arena. Um, and sorry to what end? Know, to what end? <laughs> you mean why do we bother going to the moon? Is that the question? <laughs> I, well, broadly, I guess that is the question. But but what is the outcome that people specifically want to get from going back to the moon? Is really the question I'm asking. Well, the moon is. Uh, this is you're asking me to become a generalist. Now I'm a lunar scientist. So okay, so let's see if I can be a lunar scientist for a minute. Sure. Um, the moon is essentially uh, our gateway to understanding our own past of the formation of the Earth. Um, before we went there and started gathering samples in the 60s, nobody knew if it was a captured satellite from somewhere else or if it had always been there when the planet formed or, uh, you know, if it was even made of the same stuff that the Earth is made out of. And they were, you know, in as late as 1966, they were arguing, um, you know, differing points of view on whether you'd even fall into the surface if you tried to land. We knew so little about the moon and we went there six times, gathered uh, samples from those six locations that we've been sa uh, analyzing now for the last 50 years. Um, and that is where we get all of our information on the uh, formation of the earth and the, and our theory around how everything happened. You know, if you think about the importance of our place in the universe, we don't even know our own origin story. Uh, and unless we go try to find these things out, the idea of going to only six different places and picking up a few rocks and trying to tell the whole story that way is the situation we're in right now. And the the plan right now is to return to uh, the South Pole, This or not return to, but to go to the South Pole when we return to the moon, um, where there are craters that have been in permanent shadow um, for billions of years, um, because the moon is actually at almost at perfectly 90 degrees to the sun. Um, so there's areas the sun never shines and areas that the sun never doesn't shine. 
And in these permanently shadowed areas, they have found evidence of water ice, sort of muddy muddy material that shouldn't exist. By all the theories, there shouldn't have been a place where these materials, they're called volatile materials, still exist. And if there is water ice on the moon, that is something that we could refine in order to live there because we could turn water into hydrogen and oxygen. So that's energy and, and consumables for humans to live. Um, Raising the question, I guess, why would we want to do that? Well, I, this is back to uh, learning to explore in other places. If this is the, you know, if a lot of people think about Mars as a place to go next um, for people to go colonize, um, this is picture this as camping in your backyard before you go way out into the deep woods. Um, so camping in your backyard is going to the moon and doing it by proxy. Uh, what does it take to live on another planet um, and learning how to do that? This is so learning how to use the materials in situ, as it's called. So the local materials and not bringing everything with you and consuming it is a huge part of that. So this is this is um, the lunar exploration efforts are part of that. Um, and it all is tied to uh, us becoming a multiplanetary species um, where if you think about it, we ha is what has to happen with humanity if we have any plans to exist beyond the next uh, cataclysmic event, uh, whether that's an asteroid impact or, you know, us ruining the earth ourselves or in some way, nuclear war, whatever you have it right now, all of our eggs are in one basket. So, you know, we, here we are in this conversation now in a very broad sense, talking about the future of humanity, but really at the forefront of human knowledge and the science that we gather, we have to explore and go do these things or we're really just going to be sitting here theorizing, and that's not the same thing. And I guess that makes you a historian of the future of humanity. <laughs> sure, I'll take that. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so how long has it been since we were last there? The last time we were there was December of 1972. And what's so been the delay? Uh, well, uh, the reason we went the first time was, uh, the, the short for it is, uh, footprints and flags, you know, um, it was to beat the Russians, uh, in the space race to show that our, our economic way of life was better or just as good as the Russians as they beat us in low earth orbit, uh, in the space race. Um, so it was, it was kind of a cold war military exercise or, you know, at least military and spending scale with the same outcome, like to try to win against, um, uh, foreign power. Um, and now all the reasons, and they, they quickly then over the Apollo period, it became about science. And on Apollo 17, uh, Jack Schmidt, the only scientist to go to the moon, went to the moon and, and, uh, and conducted field geology, which I think is amazing. I mean, imagine you're a career uh, geologist, and now you're on the surface of the moon conducting field geology and picking up samples. It's just unbelievable story. But uh, that we haven't been back because uh, for a long time that space exploration was kind of about firsts, you know, did you go do this? Did you go do that? Um, and you know, we, as it became more about science, we focused on non-human space flight. So we worked on, you know, we've sent probes all over the solar system. We've learned so much about, um, different planets. We've, we've had vehicles driving around on the surface of Mars conducting science and the human exploration side of things has been limited to the international space station, um, and the shuttle program before that. Um, so now, now we're getting back into the idea of human exploration um, onto another planet. So it's not necessarily just the scientific payload anymore that's the important thing. It's the fact that 
humanity needs to go and explore and go to that new place and learn what it is like to be there. It's just sort of time to do that. That it feels like a big delay because it's been you know forty odd forty odd years, uh, fifty years to Apollo thirteen in in April, um, and uh, but that's kind of right on schedule. If you if you look at the Europeans, uh, you know, exploration and coming across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, uh, it was over a hundred years between the first visit by Columbus and a permanent settlement. Uh, that came to live. Uh, so we're we're right on schedule when it comes to humanity exploration. Um, so from that point of view, this this whole you know in NASA's past, NASA's present, NASA's future, it's all really just space exploration as it's occurring. And Apollo is something that just just occurred very recently, and we're learning to do that uh, in a permanent sense for a permanent um, uh, habitation on the moon. Brilliant. April eleventh. Uh, which is just a few weeks away. How are you going to be spending yeah. the day? <laughs> well, I'll have, I think I'm traveling that day. I, I'm so that it's pretty crazy that the week leading up to that, I'm going to be in the desert in New Mexico conducting another field analog uh, where we are pretending we're on the surface of another planet uh, gathering data. And then I'll, I guess I'll take a shower and get the dust off and sit at my computer and try to keep a website from crashing as many people because come to visit. That's the date of the explosion itself, isn't it? No, April 11th is the launch date. Uh, the, and it depends on the time zone, but it's between the 13th and the 14th is when the explosion occurred. I think that's that's right. Don't, it's 55 hours into the mission. So uh, yeah, or somebody else will have to do the math. I always get my time zones mixed up because I tried to think in ground elapsed time and not in time of day. <laughs> but uh, I guess that's what people will be if they're if they're tuning in for something. That's the bit they're going to be uh, tuning in for. Sure. Well, I mean, if you if you do visit during the anniversary, there is you know what was happening right now, but you are still able to navigate the website and go to any any time you want uh, if you want to skip ahead or back, and it'll always stay online. So it, you know, it's it's really only a special thing for the anniversary because it has this reality TV aspect to it. But the website will go live March thirteenth, so people will get a chance to to look around and listen to the different consoles and get a feel for what was happening on the mission, and then come back again on the anniversary if they like to to get that emotional impact of of being there. Interesting. And uh, are we going to see any kind of Hollywood uh, tie-ins for this one this time around? <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't heard from Tom Hanks. We'll see what he has to say. <laughs> ben Feist, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I really appreciate you taking interest. All right. Cheers, and good luck for it. Thank you. That's software developer and spaceflight data visualization researcher Ben Feist of NASA, at Ben Feist on Twitter, and that's the MTF podcast. Please go check out ApolloInRealTime.org. It's absolutely astonishing. And next week, the Apollo 13 mission launches on the website. Really looking forward to following along with that. Now, if you liked this, this comes under the umbrella of your sort of thing. Well, it's our sort of thing, too. Why not hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episode of the podcast just as it comes out? You can share, like, rate, and, of course, review. And in the meantime, as Casey Kasem used to say, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I'm Andrew Dubber. Have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.